welcome to Tales from the Other Side. I'm your host, Kat Wiseman, and thank you guys for joining me for the fifth episode of Tales from the Other Side. I'd hope to do a bit more uh, for this mile marker episode, uh, because I guess five is kind of a mile marker, but it's really been like a hell of a week, so I just wanted to start off kind of talking a little bit about that and explain what happened with the live episode so that y'all kind of have an explanation there. Basically, I've been I've been working as a bartender uh, for about a month now, and that's why I wasn't able to do the live episode on Halloween, was I was working Halloween night. And this is kind of the source of all my stress this week, because for whatever reason, this week I was put on as a server for like three of the five shifts that I work, uh, which does not come anywhere close to paying the same amount as I would have if I were on those bartending shifts. Uh, and can I just say, guys, don't, really seriously, don't go out if you can't tip. And putting $5 on the table, like, if your bill is $20 or less, yeah, that's a good tip. But once it gets over $20, you're tipping less than the 20% tip that, like, we make two nineteen an hour. We need the 20% tips, otherwise we don't make minimum wage. And if, and like, we even know you can't really live off of minimum wage. So, please, 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 please tip your waiter or waitress, even if it seems like they're having a bad day. Because think about it, you go to work, you're not paid based on how your day is going. And you're doing that to these people. So please don't do that. Please tip. It's very important. Um, So I've already been pretty stressed out because, of course, this happens the week that rent is due. And so yesterday, Thursday, when I was going to be doing the live episode, actually, I ended up going out and having a couple of beers at lunch. And I don't know if it's, like, because I got a tattoo on Wednesday, which was part of this Halloween deal it was ten dollars so like (laughs) don't get on me about complaining about not getting tips and then spending money on a tattoo when it was a ten dollar tattoo I made that I did make that much money Monday night I made twelve dollars Monday night (laughs) anyway so yeah I don't know if it was because of that or because I haven't had anything other than like Michelob Ultra for a really long time but those two beers like knocked me on my ass and so I ended up taking a nap and I rarely ever take naps and when I do it's like 20 minutes so I thought all right I'll be up in plenty of time to go record uh but that was just not the case I woke up at like 6 30 30 minutes after I was supposed to start the live episode with just a massive migraine and maybe I I mean I guess maybe I was just like super dehydrated or I don't know but it hadn't even really really gotten dark outside yet and I had to wait for it to get dark outside to even be able to move off the couch like my house had to be dark because I was just so light sensitive and so not being able to record that kind of messed up today's episode or the fifth episode because what I was going to do was record the live episode which I was going to go to a local cemetery and have my Ouija board and like try and do like a little seance kind of thing and so I was going to record that post that for the sound for that for today's episode but obviously that did not work out and so I had to do some research and I was like well I still want to do something Halloween-y but what if I wondered if the Sanderson sisters from um, Hocus Pocus were based on anyone real and I was like that could that could be interesting 
But turns out that they, I mean, yeah, there were some sisters who were victims of the Salem witch trials, but not the Sanderson sisters. Their execution date in the movie was set like a year after the trials ended completely. And there's just no one really matching their character descriptions or whatever from that time period. And I do want to like touch on the Salem Witch Trials, but that needs to kind of be its own episode. And there was no way I was going to be, be able to do all that research last night. Um, so, but as I was scrolling around the internet trying to find the answer to whether or not these women were based on people who were real... I ended up coming over towards uh, the Lizzie Borden story and thought, she's real and she's creepy and, like, the poem you hear a lot on Halloween. And so I'm just going to smoke a bowl and read to you guys about Lizzie Borden, um, have a nice and easy fifth episode. And so without further ado, uh, without any further complaining from me, so let's get started. Uh, get yourself comfy, turn off the lights, uh, grab a bowl with me or grab a drink, whatever's going to get you in the mood, and we're going to get nice and creepy with Miss Lizzie Borden. The Trial of Lizzie Borden, an account. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Actually, the Bordens received only 29 wax, not the 81 suggested by the famous Diddy. But the popularity of the above poem is a testament to the public's fascination with the 1893 murder trial of Lizzie Borden. The source of that fascination might lie in the almost unimaginable brutal nature of the crime, given the sex, background, and age of the defendant, or in the jury's acquittal of Lizzie, in the face of prosecution evidence that most historians today find compelling. Background on a hot August 4, 1892, at 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, the maid in the Borden family residence, rested in her bed after having washed the outside windows. She heard the bell at City Hall ring and looked at her clock. It was 11 o'clock. A cry from Lizzie Borden, the younger of two Borden daughters, broke the silence. Maggie, come down! Come down quick! Father's dead! Somebody came in and killed him. A half hour or so later, after the body hacked almost beyond recognition of Andrew Borden, had been covered and the downstairs searched by police for evidence of an intruder, a neighbor who had come to comfort Lizzie, Adelaide Churchill, made a grisly discovery on the second floor of the Borden home. The body of Abby Borden, Lizzie's stepmother. Investigators found Abby's body cold while Andrew's had been discovered warm, indicating that Abby was killed earlier, probably at least 90 minutes earlier than her husband. Under the headline, Shocking Crime, a venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home, the Fall River Herald reported that news of the Borden murders spread like wildfire, and hundreds poured into Second Street, where for years Andrew J. Borden and his wife had lived in happiness. The Herald reporter who visited the crime scene described the face of the dead man as sickening. Over the left temple, a wound six by four inches wide had been made, as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out, and a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces, and the blood had covered the man's shirt. Despite the gore, the room was in order, and there were no signs of a scuffle of any kind. Initial speculation as to the identity of the murderer, the Fall River Herald, Herald reported, centered on a Portuguese laborer who had visited the Borden home earlier in the morning and asked for the wages due to him. 
only to be told by Andrew Borden that he had no money and to call later. The story added that medical evidence suggested that Abby Borden was killed by a tall man who struck the woman from behind. Two days after the murder, papers began reporting evidence that 33-year-old Lizzie Borden might have had something to do with her parents' murders. Most significantly, Eli Bentz, a clerk at S.R. Smith's drugstore in Fall River, told police that Lizzie visited the store the day before the murder and attempted to purchase prussic acid, a deadly poison. A story in the Boston Daily Globe reports rumors that Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully and that for a considerable time back they have not spoken, but noted that family members insisted relations between the two women were quite normal. The Boston Herald, meanwhile, viewed Lizzie as above suspicion. From the consensus of opinion, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. Police came to the conclusion that the murderers must have been committed by someone within the Borden home, but were puzzled by the lack of blood anywhere except on the bodies of the victims and their inability to uncover an obvious murder weapon. Increasingly, suspicions turned toward Lizzie, since her older sister Emma was out of the home at the time of the murders. Investigators found it odd that Lizzie knew so little of her mother's whereabouts after 9 a.m. when, according to Lizzie, she had gone upstairs to put shams on the pillows. They also found unconvincing her story that, during the 15 minutes in which Andrew Borden was murdered in the living room, Lizzie was out in the backyard barn looking for irons, lead sinkers, for an upcoming fishing excursion. The barn loft where she said she looked revealed no footprints on the dusty floor, and the stifling heat in the loft seemed likely to discourage anyone from spending more than a few minutes searching for equipment that would not be used for days. Theories about a tall male intruder were reconsidered, and one leading physician explained that hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she is doing. On August 9th, an inquest into the Borden murders was held in the courtroom over police headquarters. Before criminal magistrate Josiah Blaisdell, District Attorney Hosea Knowlton questioned Lizzie Borden, Bridget Sullivan, household guest John Morse, and others. During her four hours' examination, Lizzie gave confused and contradictory answers. Two days later, the inquest adjourned, and Police Chief Hillard arrested Lizzie Borden. The next day, Lizzie entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of murder and was transported by rail car to the jail in Taunton, eight miles to the north of Fall River. On August 22nd, Lizzie returned to a Fall River courtroom for her preliminary hearing at the end of which Judge Josiah Blaisdell pronounced her probably guilty and ordered her to face a grand jury and possible charges for the murder of her parents. In November, the grand jury met. After first refusing to issue an indictment, the jury reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell, a family friend who stayed with the Borden sisters in the days following the murders. Russell told grand jurors that she had witnessed Lizzie Borden burning a blue dress in the kitchen fire, allegedly because, as Lizzie explained her action, it was covered with old paint. Coupled with the earlier testimony from Bridget Sullivan that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders, the evidence was enough to convince the grand jury to indict Lizzie for the murders of her parents. Russell's testimony was also enough to convince the Borden sisters to sever all ties with their old friend forever. The Trial the trial of Lizzie Borden opened on June 5, 1893, in the New Bedford Courthouse before a panel of three judges. A high-powered defense team, including Andrew Jennings and George Robinson, the former governor of Massachusetts, represented the defendant, while District Attorney Knowlton and Thomas Moody argued the case for the prosecution. Before a jury of 12 men, Moody opened the state's case. When Moody carelessly threw Lizzie's blue frock on the prosecution table during his speech, it revealed the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden. The sight of her parents' skulls, according to a newspaper account, caused Lizzie to fall into a faint lasting for several minutes, 
sending a thrill of excitement through awestruck spectators and causing unfeigned embarrassment and discomfiture to penetrate the ranks of counsel. For most of the two hours of Moody's speech, Lizzie watched from behind a fan as the prosecutor described Lizzie as the only person having both the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders, and then pulled from a bag the head of the axe that he claimed Lizzie used to kill her parents. The first several witnesses for the state testified concerning events in and around the Borden home on the morning of August 4, 1892. The most important of these witnesses, 26-year-old Bridget Sullivan, testified that Lizzie was the only person she saw in the home at the time her parents were murdered, though she provided some consolation to the defense when she said that she had not witnessed, during her t over two years of service to the family, signs of the rumored ugly relationship between Lizzie and her mother. Everything was pleasant, she said. Lizzie and her mother always spoke to each other. Other prosecution witnesses disputed Sullivan's assertion that all was fine between Lizzie and her stepmother. For example, Hannah H. Gifford, who made a garment for Lizzie a few months before the murders, described a conversation in which Lizzie called her stepmother a mean, good-for-nothing thing and said, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. Sullivan also testified that Andrew and Abby Borden experienced stomach pains on the day before the murder and told jurors that at the presumed time of Abby's murder, Lizzie claimed she was wa washing windows outside. Sullivan testified that she opened the door for Andrew Borden after he returned home from his walk about town and then described hearing Lizzie's cry for help a few minutes after 11 o'clock. Several witnesses described seeing Andrew Borden at various points in town in the two hours before he returned home to his death. Household guest John Morse, age 60, described having breakfast in the Borden home on the morning of the murders and then leaving the house to perform chores. The next set of witnesses described events and conversations after discovery of the murders. Dr. Seabury Bowen, the Borden family physician summoned to the home by Lizzie in the late morning of August 4th, recounted Lizzie's story about looking for lead sinkers in the barn and her contention that her father's troubles with his tenants probably had something to do with the murders. On cross-examination, Seabury agreed that with the defense's suggestion that the morphine he prescribed for Lizzie might account for some of the confused and contradictory testimony that she gave at the inquest following the murders. Adelaide Churchill, a Borden neighbor and another important witness, remembered Lizzie wearing a light blue dress with a diamond figure on it, but did not recall seeing any blood spots on it. John Fleet, the assistant marshal of Fall River, recalled his interview with Lizzie shortly after the murders. Lizzie corrected him, he testified, when he called Abby Borden her mother. She was not my mother, sir, Lizzie replied. She was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. The most compelling testimony came again from Alice Russell. Russell described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders in which she announced that she would soon be going on a vacation and felt that something is hanging over me. I cannot describe what it is. Then, according to Russell, after describing her parents' severe stomach sickness, which she attributed to bad baker's bread, Lizzie revealed, I feel afraid something is going to happen. Explaining her feeling, Lizzie told Russell that she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Turning his questioning to the Sunday after the murders, District Attorney Moody asked Russell about the dress-burning incident. Russell recounted that when she asked Lizzie what she was doing with the blue dress, she replied, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It is covered with paint. On cross-examination, defense attorney George Robinson attempted through his questions to suggest that a guilty person seeking to destroy incriminating evidence would be unlikely to do it in so open a fashion as Lizzie allegedly did. Russell also recounted a conversation with Lizzie about a note, which according to Lizzie, Lizzie's account, she received from a messenger on the morning of the murders, summoning her to visit a sick friend. Lizzie used the note to explain why she thought her mother had left the home and therefore didn't think to look for her body after discovering, discovering her father's. 
Despite a thorough search of the Borden home, the alleged note was never found. Russell said she sarcastically suggested to Lizzie that her mother might have burned the note. Lizzie, according to Russell, replied, yes, she must have. A newspaper account of the prosecution case likened it to a pigeon-shooting match in which District Attorney Moody kept flinging up the birds and defying his antagonist to hit them, while the ex-governor, Defense Attorney Robinson, constantly fired and often, but by no means always, wounded or brought them down. Robinson's performance impressed reporters, with one writing that the ex-governor is certainly without equal in New York City as a cross-examiner. Robinson seemed ready to turn more or less to his own account, nearly every government witness, according to one trial reporter. The defense made its case using, for the most part, the state's own witnesses. There's never been a trial so full of surprises, wrote one reporter covering the trial, with such marvelous contradictions given by witnesses called for a common purpose. The defense kept hammering at the contradictory testimony of key prosecution witnesses. The defense also explored holes in the prosecution case, where the defense asked, is the handle that supposedly broke off from the axe head that the state hauled into court and claimed was part of the murder weapon? The state had no answer. The defense also exploited the government's own timeline, which allowed from 8 to 13 minutes between Andrew Borden's murder and Lizzie's call to Bridget Sullivan. Robinson tried to suggest the difficulty of washing blood off one's person, clothes, and murder weapon of blood, and then hiding the murder weapon all within that short a time span. The decisive moment in the trial might have come when the three-judge panel ruled that Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, full of contradictions and implausible claims, could not be submitted into evidence by the prosecution. The judges concluded that Lizzie, at the time of the coroner's inquest, was for all practical purposes a prisoner charged with two murders and that her testimony at the inquest, made in the absence of her attorney, was not voluntary. Lizzie should have been warned, the judges said, that she had a right under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution to remain silent. The judges rejected the state's argument that Lizzie was only a suspect, not a prisoner, at the time of the inquest, and that anyway her statement should be admitted because it was in the nature of a denial rather than a confession. The prosecution rested its case on June 14th after one final defeat. The state wanted to have druggist Eli Bentz recount for the jury his story of Lizzie Borden visiting a Fall River's drugstore on the day before the murders and asking for 10 cents worth of prussic acid, a poison. With the jurors excused, each leaving the courtroom with a palm leaf fan and ice water, the state tried to establish through medical experts, druggists, furriers, and chemists the qualities, properties, and uses of prussic acid. The judges, after listening to the state's foundational case, concluded that the evidence should be excluded. The defense presented only a handful of witnesses. Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby reported seeing a strange man near the Borden house around 11 o'clock on the night before the murders. Dr. Benjamin Hanfey testified that he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk near 92 2nd Street around 10.30 on August 4th. A plumber and a gas fitter testified that in the day or two before the murders they had been in the Borden's barn loft, casting doubt on police assertions that Lizzie's alibi was suspect because dust in the, lo in the loft appeared undisturbed. Emma Borden, the older sister of Lizzie, was the defense's most anticipated witness. Emma testified that Lizzie and her father enjoyed a good relationship. She told jurors that the gold ring found on the little finger of Andrew Borden's body was given to him 10 or 15 years ago by Lizzie, and he prized it highly. Emma also insisted that relations between Lizzie's and her stepmother were cordial, even as she admitted to lingering resentment herself over the transfer by her father of a Fall River home, which Emma called Grandfather's house, to Abby and her sister. The defense had also hoped that Emma might testify that the Bordens had a custom of disposing of remnants and pieces of dresses by burning, but the court ruled the evidence inadmissible. Summing up for the defense, A.V. Jennings argued there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. 
There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that have they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. Following Jennings, Governor Robinson, in his closing speech for the defense, insisted that the crime must have been committed by a maniac or a devil, not by someone with the respectable background of his client. He said the state had failed to meet its burden of proving guilt by beyond a reasonable doubt, and that it was physically impossible for Lizzie, without the help of a confederate, to have committed the crime within the timeline suggested by the prosecution. Robinson ridiculed the theory that Lizzie might have avoided getting blood spots on her clothes by killing her parents while stark naked, and argued that the murders might well have been committed by an intruder who passed out of the house undetected. After Josiah Knowlton's able summing up of the prosecution's evidence, Justice Dewey charged the jury. According to one newspaper report, had the judge been the senior counsel for the defense, making the closing plea in behalf of the defendant, he could not have more absolutely pointed out the folly of depending upon circumstantial evidence alone. It was, the newspaper said, a remarkable charge, a plea for the innocent. Judge Dewey told jurors they should take into account Lizzie's exceptional Christian character, which entitled her to every inference in her favor. The jury deliberated an hour and a half before returning with its verdict. The clerk asked the foreman of the jury, what is your verdict? Not guilty, the foreman replied simply. Lizzie let out a yell, sank onto her chair, rested her hands on a courtroom rail, put her face in her hands, and then let out a second cry of joy. Soon, Emma, her counsel, and courtroom spectators were rushing to congratulate Lizzie. She hid her face in her sister's arms and announced, Now take me home. I want to go to the old place and go at once tonight. Aftermath Papers generally praised the jury's verdict. The New York Times, for example, editorialized, It will be a certain relief to every right-minded man or woman who has followed the case to learn that the jury of New Bedford has not only acquitted Miss Lizzie Borden of the atrocious crime with which she was charged, but has done so with a promptness that was very significant. The Times added that it considered the verdict a condemnation of the police authorities of Fall River who secured the indictment and have conducted the trial. Not stopping there, the Times editorialist blasted the vanity of ignorant and untrained men charged with the detection of crime in smaller cities. The police in Fall River, the editorial concluded, are the usual inept and stupid and muddle-headed sort that such towns manage to get for themselves. It is probably fair to say that, however likely it might be that Lizzie did murder her parents, the prosecution failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The state's case rested largely on the argument that it was impossible for anyone else to have committed the crime. For the Borden jury, that and a few other suspicious actions on Lizzie's part, such as burning a dress, turned out not to be enough for a conviction. Had the defendant been a male, some speculate, the jury might have been more inclined to convict. One of the defense's great advantages was that most persons in 1893 found it hard to believe that a woman of Lizzie's background could have pulled off such brutal killings. After the trial, Lizzie Borden returned to Fall River, where she and her sister Emma purchased an impressive home on the hill, which they called Maplecroft. Lizzie took an interest in theater, frequently attending plays and often associating with actors, artists, and bohemian types. Emma moved out of Maplecroft in 1905. Lizzie continued to live in Maplecroft until her death at, six, at age 67 in 1927. She was buried by the graves of her parents in Fall River's Oak Grove Cemetery. Alright, so that was the trial of Lizzie Borden. I know the first time I heard it, I don't know how many of you heard it for the first time just now, I was pretty surprised to hear that she had been acquitted just because I'd only ever heard the poem for so long and then like I researched it and found oh she's they were not able to find her guilty of this crime which I kind of get like when you look at the 
evidence in a more objective way like the jury had to it does seem like I mean it's not enough really to prove her guilty beyond a shadow of doubt which is what you have to do and um but it also like makes you wonder who it could have been if not her and there are a lot of unanswered questions but I guess that's this is one of those cases like Jack the Ripper or anything else where it's kind of solved, kind of not solved. We still have questions that we'll never have answers, maybe. But I guess that's what makes life and mysteries so interesting. It's the all the what-ifs. Uh, but yeah, so thank you guys for joining me. Uh, joining me and Lizzie for our story today. And get ready, because... We're going to have a lot of exciting things coming up in the next few episodes. I've got a lot of plans and ideas uh, for the holiday season, even though we're out of the Halloween holiday season. There's, I mean, there's still ghosts hanging around. There's, They're not going anywhere anytime soon. So, yeah. Um, thanks for joining me. And don't forget to follow Tales from the Other Side on Twitter at TFTOS podcast and on Instagram at Tales from the Other Side. Like and subscribe on iTunes, on SoundCloud, uh, and send in your scare your scary or spooky or otherworldly stories to Tales from the Other Side seven at gmail.com and we'll read them on the air or on the podcast. This isn't a radio show, it's a podcast. Um yeah, so do all that, and stay spooky, guys.